Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today, I'm talking to Brian Broom. His memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods, will be out on Tuesday, May 18th. Brian, congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for coming on Read More. Ah, thank you very much for having me, Marva. It's a great pleasure to be here. Brian has won several awards for his writing. In addition to memoir, he also writes poetry and screenplays, and he teaches in the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. I have already recommended your memoir to friends. It's just this beautiful book about growing up black and gay and poor and dark-skinned in a small town in Ohio in the 80s. You also touch on your addiction to alcohol and cocaine that you developed as a young man. But I understand you did not set out to write a memoir. How did this all come about? Um, No, I did not set out to write a memoir or really anything at all. Um, How it came about was I had gotten to a point in my life that was pretty dark. um, And I was causing damage to myself. Um, and the people around me. So um, a good friend of mine said, if you don't, if you don't go to rehab, uh, I will no longer be your friend and you're going to die on top of that. So um, I went to rehab. I decided before I got to rehab that I didn't need to be there. Um, Once I was there, uh, they put me in a room with a man who snored um, just like a freight train. He snored Every night he had a, a CPAP machine and it would slide off of his face. Um, and then he would just bring the walls down uh, with his snoring and I couldn't sleep. So um, I sat up nights um, and they gave you this pen and pad in the rehab that I went to. You were supposed to write down your uh, epiphanies and thoughts. And I just started writing. Um, and the question that I was asking myself is, you know, why am I here? Why do I, why am I really here? Do I really think I have a problem? And so instead of sort of directly addressing those questions, I started to write stories um, from my life, which I thought were kind of watershed moments for me. Um, I started writing them. um, And then that was all I was doing. I was up till three, four in the morning, like just writing these stories. And um, so I had a a little, a little collection of stories once I got out. And when I got out, um, I was afraid to leave my house because during my during my stint in rehab, I recognized, yes, in fact, I did have a problem. And yes, in fact, it did need to be addressed. And uh, when I got out, I was terrified that I would relapse. So I stayed at home all the time. And I was writing on social media, just these long tomes on, on Facebook. And, and then a friend of mine reached out and said to me, you know, the stuff that you're writing on Facebook is not bad. Like maybe you should try to submit some of it somewhere and, and get it published. And, you know, I had no idea what that meant, um, but I did it. And the first thing that I ever sent out got published. And I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe there's something to this. And then I started um, getting more, more and more uh, social in a way. I wanted to see people, but I didn't want to interact with people. So I started doing performances um, all around Pittsburgh. Uh, I was doing readings and, and doing the moth and doing, um, this thing in Pittsburgh called wordplay. That was a lot of fun. So I got to interact like with an audience, but not, you know, one-on-one. So I felt kind of safe. Uh, and then one night I did a reading at a, a space here in Pittsburgh and a woman 
walked up and said, you know, my name is Danielle and I'd like to be your agent. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that means, but sure. And that's how the book got rolling. Um, uh, she said, what do you have? What do you have written? And I said, I just, you know, I have these stories that I was writing in rehab and, you know, and that's, that's the book <laughs> basically. Oh, wow. That's an amazing story. And, uh, I'm sure when you got home that night, you had to be having a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, you weren't even setting out to write a memoir. You were just taking some, jotting down some things in rehab. Did you ever think, is this really a good idea? Because I always wonder whenever I read a memoir, I always say, oh, anybody who writes a memoir is so brave. <laughs> I just can't imagine opening myself up like that. Well, I mean, in the beginning, when, when Danielle asked me if she could be my agent, I thought, absolutely nothing is going to come of this. Like nothing will happen, you know, but I'll do it because what else am I doing? You know? So I really didn't think much about it in the beginning, but you know, now as it gets closer to an actual publication date, I think I'm thinking more like you, like, Oh my God, what am I doing? You know? Um, but I think in terms of my recovery, um, and for, uh, I don't know, kind of being healthier going forward in my life. It's better to just sort of tell the truth about what happened and maybe it'll help someone um, who might be experiencing the same things that I experienced. You use a really unique structure in your writing. Your chapters are framed around the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, We Real Cool, and your descriptions of a young boy and his dad that you notice while you're on a long bus ride. Those observations are interspersed with your writing about your childhood and your time as a young man. Why did you choose to tell your story this way? I feel like um, it kind of chose me in a way. You know, I had this collection of stories and I was writing them. And then um, I was introduced to the Gwendolyn Brooks poem and uh, the way it was structured and, and what it was talking about really resonated with me. I read that poem and I thought, you know, she's talking about black masculinity. You know, if you listen to her uh, being interviewed about the poem, she never, and not in any interview that I ever saw or heard, does she say the word masculinity. But to me, it felt like this is exactly what this poem is about. It's a sort of mini treatise on how black boys uh, oftentimes learn to conduct themselves in, in manhood or learn how to become a man. You know the aloofness, the um, you know the the, the um, you know well the aloofness is the thing that that sticks out the most. Uh, you know we real cool, we left school, um, we lurk late. You know those kinds of tough guy things. You know, and I thought, you know, I wonder what I was doing at that time in my life. Because Gwendolyn Brooks describes the poem um, when she's interviewed as saying like she was walking by a pool hall. You know, um, and there were seven boys inside who were conducting themselves in a very kind of manly way. And she wondered what they thought about themselves. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking that, too. What did I think about myself when I was uh, a young boy? And those lines just leapt out at me, you know, and I, I was like, I have a story for every one of these lines, you know, sometimes two stories. So then that became integrated into the book. 
Uh, the bus ride, I got to tell you, I ride on the bus every day. It's a weird habit that I have. Every time I get on a bus, I take out the pen and paper and I just start jotting down the things that I see, um, jotting down people's behaviors and eavesdropping on people's conversations. And, um, and when I saw that man and his son uh, interacting, I saw, you know, a kind of pedagogy going on. I saw a tutelage, like his father was teaching him what not to do in order to conduct himself as a man. And that leapt out at me as well. And I was like, well, that has to be, that has to be part, part of the book somehow, you know? So I feel like just in looking around and, and looking at other artists work and looking at the world around me, like those, that structure kind of came to me. I don't know that I did anything to bring it about, but um, that's how the, that's how the structure of the book ended up the way that it is. Well, I feel like it works really well that you can hear they are the things are talking to each other and that's really neat whenever you get to see that yeah i thought they worked well together so you write about knowing from an early age that you were different you were not like your dad not like your brother or the boys you went to school with and you paid a big price for this you write about being physically abused by so-called friends and by your dad um, the title actually comes from something your dad said to you during one of your beatings. And I just want to be clear, I know this is about uh, the 80s and it was a different time and people might have had different feelings about corporal punishment then, but you were not enduring spankings. I mean, you were, he was beating you, just punching you like you were a grown man. And it seemed like everybody was saying, you know, Brian, you need to toughen up. You need to, you know, quote unquote, be a man. As you were writing, how did you decide what to include just in terms of the abuse? Because I imagine there was a lot that you didn't write about. Yeah, there was a lot that I didn't write about. I think you, you write about it until you, you believe your reader has got the point. You know, I don't, I didn't think that there was any need to chronicle every beating, you know, that I endured uh, growing up. I felt that it was more important to discuss why the beatings happen than the beatings themselves. They were primarily because, you know, I wasn't acting the way that I was supposed to be acting. Uh, I wasn't, you know, tough. I wasn't manly. And he was trying to show me that this is, you know, this is wrong. This is, this, this can't be the way that you go through the world. And obviously he had his reasons that are, that are revealed in the book. Um, but in terms of what to include, I, I talked to a lot of people, um, you know, some people I don't have any contact with anymore, but I talked to the people with whom I still have contact. And I asked, you know, can I include this? You know, would this hurt you? And then there's people I don't care about. I mean, <laughs> um, there are people, you know, who are so long ago in the past that I, um, you know, and I, and I try not to say anything that would hurt them as well. Um, I just try to get to the truth of it. Um, and and try to do as little damage uh, to people as possible. I think the person that I throw under the bus mostly in this book is myself. Um, and, you know, and that's very, and, and that's a very honest way of approaching it too. Again, it's for, it's for me. Like I have to be as truthful as I can about this or else what's the point. Before reading your book, I hadn't really thought a lot about colorism from the male perspective as a dark skinned black woman. I know how painful it is, but it was really interesting for me 
to see how it played out for you. Why was it so important that you shared your experience, not just as a black man, but as a black man with dark skin? You know, I, you know, that story is an interesting story because um, it was published somewhere else before. And where it was published before, I got a lot of comments from dark skinned black women who said that they they didn't, they didn't know and other women in my life who said they didn't know that men deal with colorism in this way as well. Um, and I think in the gay community, it was a big deal. Um, you know, the darker you were, the more sexualized you were. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if it's that way for dark skinned black women or not. Um, but there is this sort of assumption that goes along with the darkness of your skin. That is, bizarre and, um, and dehumanizing. Um, I thought it, I didn't know that I was sharing something that was not known, you know, uh, by the general public. I knew that when I was growing up, my darkness meant that I was ugly. Um, because I think in the eighties it was all about, you know, light skinned, <laughs> you know, I remember, you know, uh, the more des- the, the more desirable boys were always the light skinned boys. It was like a big big rage and good hair, you know. Um, and I remember that I was ugly uh, when I was young. And then as I came out and started going into gay life more and more, I wasn't so much ugly as I was fetishized, you know. Um, I don't know if I can say this on your program, but it was like you know you have a big, you know, because you're black, you have a big dick, and you are mainly used for sex. There was no humanity um, involved with it. And you were a fetish item. Um, so I just wanted to incorporate that story to, to, to sort of illustrate how I, I thought I was supposed to fit into the world. You know, I was supposed to be rough and tough and sexy and a sex machine and super masculine. And I was none of those things. Um, and I believed that that was my failing. I was trying to fit into the ideas that other people had about my body. And I think that happens to a lot of us. Well, I'm so glad that you included it because it prompted me to have some conversations. I uh, actually talked to my husband about this and saying, oh, I didn't realize that dark-skinned black men face this. I mean, I, I was talking to him about some of the stereotypes there are about light-skinned black men that we see now. And, and he shared an experience with me about there was a, a dark-skinned boy at his high school who everyone was afraid of. Mm-hmm. And he said he felt like it was because not only was he black, and this was a school where there weren't that many black kids at all, but he was black and he was dark. And that made the teachers, everybody, oh, he's, and he's like, he's the same kid he's always been. Yeah. So it's, I, it's- it's interesting. Just, I mean, it, I didn't mean to cut you off. That just no, no, it's okay. Uh, it resonated with me because also, you know, the dark, it's, it's such a bizarre thing we we've done, you know, with with colorism. You know, the darker a man is, the tougher he is. You know, in in or the, and the more fearsome he is, he has superhuman strength. He, you know, um, again, he's he's proficient in bed. He is, you know, these weird kind of like mandingo fantasies that I. Uh, ran up against, you know, just traveling through gay life, 
you know. Um, and it was just, it was not me. And, and um, you know, I, I do know boys who, who tried very hard to fit into the mold of what other people saw, like to perform this, this idea that other people saw in their bodies. And it was really, um, it was pretty damaging, I think, to, to me. You also write a lot about race in this book. You mentioned that as a child, you saw your parents struggling financially and also enduring a loveless marriage. And these were things that you never saw from the white families popular on TV at the time. (laughs) And you say that you saw white not just as a race, but as a goal. Looking back on it now, where do you think that came from? Was it strictly from TV? It was from TV. A lot of it, you know, that's what I thought white people were, you know. And it also came from, you know, my schoolmates, my white schoolmates, you know, who were also trying to sh- to um, perform this thing that they saw on TV. You know, as I got older and I met white people for real, you know, they were like, you know, my family was nothing like that. My family was dysfunctional. We We didn't have any money, like... You know, my family looked a lot like yours in the book. You know, um, my parents got married, you know, young and they had problems and et cetera, et cetera. Like, so it, it came from just me sitting in front of that damn television and learning what life was through it or what I thought life was through it. And all I knew at the time was that my parents were not providing this beautiful life that you know, these white people had on TV and why weren't they? And maybe it was because I was unlovable and maybe it was because we were black and maybe, maybe being black means that you're automatically a failure. I just had all of these ideas swirling through my head and I bought into this idea of whiteness being better, like pretty early on, you know, and, uh, it unfortunately attached itself to me. Um, and, I, I lived that way for uh, far too long, far too long, um, and realize, of course, now that it's all just a big lie. You know, it's a huge construct. It's made up. It's it's uh, it's ridiculous. Um, but there are people who swear by this idea of race. There are people who can't live without the idea of race um, because it, they feel it. Whatever race they are makes them better, or you know, whatever. You know, the ridiculous of it now smacks me in the face um, of how, but I was young, you know, I was foolish. And there was, you know, I think the, the, and if I can talk about my parents in this way, I think the mistake that they made, and they didn't know they were making it. I'm not talking bad on my parents, but what they did was they told me that white people could be mean. They told me that white people could be unfair. They told me that white people could be dangerous, but they didn't tell me why. And what I mean by that is they didn't tell me that these people who practice this thing, you know, this racism, as Toni Morrison said, are bereft. You know, they didn't tell me that these people are wrong. They just told me that these people are capable, these people are capable of doing you harm. But they didn't tell me that I wasn't wrong for being. They just told me to watch out for white people, if that makes any sense at all. And that's a vital component, you know. To, uh, you know, yes, as, as black parents, they had to warn their children about 
you know, what white people can be. But they should have added that component, like, these people are also crazy. <laughs> that brings me to this. You uh, write about one particularly painful incident as a teenager where a group of white friends let you down and your mom had to come to your rescue. Yeah. And she was very upset and told you, don't you ever trust white folks again. And it was interesting to me that you took that to mean, don't trust the white people in this small town where you live. Oh, yeah. You thought things would be better elsewhere. Right. And as you are growing up and you are getting involved more um, in the gay scene, as you say, you talk a lot about the white men you dated. And it seemed like you were almost exclusively dating white men. What was the attraction there for you? Because it seemed a little bit more than just you're attracted to one individual who just happens to be white. Well, I think that I had learned to be afraid of black men because I had taken a lot of abuse from black men. And I had learned, you know, from television that white boys were nice. You know, I say in the book, it's about who you learn is more valuable, right? There's a, there's a part, I forget how I put it, but like I learned, and this is as honest as I could be, that black people were less valuable. And I learned that through the culture in which I lived. Um, and nobody was telling me that that wasn't true. Um, you know, my parents had their own stuff that they were dealing with. Um, I wasn't getting that message at school that I was valuable. And so I think when I went out into the world, you know, I had fully learned that black people were less valuable. And it's just, I'm ashamed to say that. But at the same time, you know, I had to forgive myself for believing that because there was no other, nothing was telling me different. No. Um, and I think eventually I, I, you know, I've obviously learned by now that that was all ridiculous, you know, but I think at the time I was super impressionable. Um, I was just trying to be better than I was quote better than I was. And I think that I made a lot of mistakes because of that. And, you know, it's one of the more shameful things that, that, that I talk about, I think in the book. And I'm saying it plainly here. I learned, I learned white whiteness to be a goal and not um, anything other than that, because that's what I think our society taught then. And I think that that's what it still teaches to some degree. There is one chapter in the book that's written from your mom's perspective. We learn about her life before she was married and some of the abuse she experienced at the hands of your father. And you say you will never know your own origin story as well as your mother does. She knows you better than you do. Talk to her because I found out so much when I finally stopped judging her long enough to let her speak. I understand that you interviewed her for this project. Why did you feel like it was so important that readers get an opportunity to hear from her? Well, I think in the book... You know, I present my mother a certain way up until a certain point, you know, and I do that on purpose. 
um, I present how I felt about her and how she behaved towards me. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of it could be considered, you know, mean or unloving or whatever. Um, and I was judging her the whole time. You know, she wasn't like the moms on TV, that damn TV again. Um, and it was important for me as I got older to, you know, to sit down and actually just listen to her. She was a whole person before I was born. She was a whole person before, you know, my, my oldest brother was born, you know, and I just wanted to know. And incidentally, like, you know, the interview that I did with her for this project was the first time my mother and I had talked about um, these kinds of things at all. I didn't know any of the stuff, you know, that's in the book before I sat down with her and talked to her about um, her life. And I was amazed, you know, that she was a young girl with dreams and who um, wanted things and who didn't necessarily, you know, get the life that she wanted, you know, and she, just that I was laughing and, and with her when she was talking about being, you know, an umbrella girl at a, at a, um, you know, at a, at a, at a uh, department store, you know, um, it was important to humanize her because everything she did she did for a good reason. Um, and I don't think that that's, that's not arguable at all. She did everything she did for a good reason. Um, and I, I just desperately wanted to humanize her. I think I try to humanize my father too, you know, towards the end as well, but I didn't, but I wanted to create a whole picture, um, of the people involved in my life and not just these kind of like one dimensional, uh, characters. Well, that definitely made me see her in a different light. And as you mentioned, you did that for your dad as well. You know, despite all the abuse you endured at his hands, you grant him a lot of grace in this book. You mentioned that a lot of what he said and did to you came from fear. How did you come to realize this? And why was it important for you to portray him this way? Because I imagine it would have been easy to just have him be this, you know, sort of large menacing figure in your life. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are probably still going to come away from this book thinking that my father is a villain and he was in some ways. Um, but again, he didn't know any other way to behave. Like, he didn't know that there were options for him. You know, he got trapped into this idea of being, you know, quote, a man, uh, end quote, to the exclusion of all other things. Um, and he just didn't know what else to do, you know. And he also came from uh, an abusive home. And, you know, the stories of my grandfather uh, and how he behaved, that's my father's father, are legendary. Um, he was just, uh, you know, a, a sociopath. And so my father, you know, who, a man coming from that environment didn't know any other way. I never met him. Um, but my mother tells stories of how violent, you know, he was with his children and his wife. So when I look at the big picture, you know, um, and this sounds, this sounds, uh, weird to say, but my father could have been a lot worse. 
um, the things that he did, like my mother, he did out of concern and concern, and he did out of a place of really just not knowing what to do. Um, you know, when he lost his sort of status, he was truly rudderless. Um, he was adrift, and I think he was confused. And I think most importantly, my father was anxiety-ridden and depressed, um, just like me. Um, I think he struggled with those things as well, and he did not know how to handle them. Um, and I often wonder, you know, what must have been going through his head, you know, when uh, his, his world fell apart. There was no such thing as going to see a therapist. There was no such thing as, you know, be, being medicated. And even if there were, that wouldn't have been something that he would have done because it just wasn't done at that time. Um, so I think, you know, I forgive him um, for being the way that he was, uh, because he just didn't know of any other option. Well, Brian, now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about what you like to read and the authors you enjoy. Sure. We are all still, a lot of us are still hanging out at home a lot Mm -hmm. of the time, um, still dealing with the issues of the pandemic. Um, if you could bring together like three writers to just hop on a, a Zoom call with and just talk about things, you know, living or dead. Only three? Only oh, you three? You want three? Okay. Uh, we can make it five. We can make it five. <laughs> we can make it five. You can right. bring together th- five writers together on a Zoom call just to talk, you know, yes. whatever you want to say, you know, spend some time with them that way. Who would you choose and why? Okay. Oh, my goodness. This is such an exciting question. Um, all right. Uh, well, James Baldwin, who I mentioned in the book, I'd really love to pick his brain. You know, um, as I say, he's not like my favorite writer because I really don't have a favorite writer. Um, but I just admire the way that he lived. Uh, so courageous um, and just so classy. He's so classy in a way that I will just never be. Um, Reginald McKnight, uh, who is an author who wrote a book that I really love, uh, called the kind of light that shines on Texas. I would just like to talk to him about writing. He's very kind of, he's very creative and weird in the way that he writes. Um, and it's kind of eccentric. Like he has a whole story about a little homunculus who lives on his back. Like it's, it's, he's just weird. And, um, I very much like the way that he writes. Jhumpa Lahiri, uh, I would love to know like how she comes up with those stories. Like um, one of my favorite books is uh, Interpreter of Maladies. Like how do you come up with those stories? V.C. Andrews, um, <laughs> who wrote a series of books, I don't know if you know this, wrote a series of books called uh, that started with Flowers in the Attic, and it was this whole series of books about these these. Uh, children who were trapped in the attic for years. Um, I think she died, though. Um, but she, well, I said like, living or dead, so that's fine. Okay, good, good. She can join um, the Zoom. Yeah, she can join the Zoom. I think that she would just bring something different to the book. Stephen King, who I like a lot, who scares the pants off me, uh, I would like to talk to him about just how prolific he is. Like, how do you write three books in a week? Like, that's just amazing to me. Um, who else? There are just... There are, a ton of 
I like I like David Sedaris, um, just because he's funny. Um, I wish I could get like Tony Morrison, like just everybody. I want to get everybody in on this Zoom. Uh, Tony Morrison uh, was a phenomenon. Um, I would just love to talk to her about life in general. Um, oh, uh, um, I, I always get her name wrong because I confuse her with the actress Octavia Butler. Um, because people always thought she was writing about race, but she was writing about space aliens, you know, um, and people would ask her questions like, what do these space aliens mean about race? And she'd be like, they mean nothing about race. They're, they're space aliens. You know, I would love to talk to her about that struggle and how she came up with her ideas. There's just so many, um, that are going to be on the zoom call. I don't know if the zoom has room. Um, and I, as I say, I don't have a favorite author. I have favorite stories. So it just multiplies the number of authors that would be on the Zoom call. Yeah. Well, let me ask you sort of about the flip side of that. Um, do you have a writer who is maybe really critically acclaimed and sold a lot of books and um, people also just really seem to love this person, but they just never did it for you? So maybe, you know, you picked up their most popular book, you couldn't get through it, or you read it and you just don't understand sort of what all the fuss was about. And I know this um, is a tough one. A lot of people. No, <laughs> it's wanna... not. No, it's not. Nobokov. Okay. <laughs> Nabokov. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't get it. It's, it may, I've considered it might just be over my head or it just might not be for me. Uh, people have told me to read Vladimir Nabokov and I don't get it. Um, I think I read Speak Memory and a couple other things, and it just, you know, it wasn't for me. I didn't, I didn't get it at all. Well, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you reading right now? Nothing. <laughs> um, You're I, in promotion I mode? <laughs> I'm in promotion mode, and I'm not reading anything at all, Marvin. Like, I wish, you know, my dream at this point, I have a garden out back. And I want somebody to come over and, and somehow rig up a hammock. Um, and I could just get, grab a book and just be there all day, like reading. I haven't read anything um, in a while because I, you know, before promotion mode, I was writing. Um, and I was also in school. Uh, so I've read a lot of pedagogical textbooks, if you're interested in hearing about those. Um, <laughs> but not a, really a whole lot. I'm looking forward to reading. Um, these books I have, I have Jeffrey Eugenides, uh, Middlesex on my desk, uh, uh, or next to my bed. I have Isabel Wilkerson's cast, uh, next to my bed. Like I just have this stack of books that I aim to get through. Um, uh, as soon as things die down a little bit, I can get back to reading. And what about writing right now? Are you able to write anything or are you just needing to get through this promotional push? Well, I, still ride the bus with my pen and pad and I still take little notes. Um, and from those notes, I hope something arises. Um, I haven't written anything long form in a while. Uh, I am working on something, um, that I hope to, uh, get somebody to publish. It's a, just a short story, um, about me and my cousin, um, and, but, you know, it's hard to get into it, you know, when you're doing uh, promotional stuff. You know, I, I'm the kind of 
person I think it, who needs it to be kind of quiet. I, and, uh, I don't want to feel nervous about my email or my text messages, you know, while I'm writing. So I think right now I'm just going to, um, you know, do the promotional thing and, and, and talk to wonderful people like you about the book. And, um, and then, you know, once that cools off a little bit, then I'm going to get back to reading and then back to writing. Okay. Well, Ryan Broom, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your work. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This was great. I really enjoyed it. You can find out how to win a free copy of Brian's Punch Me Up to the Gods on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support Brian and the show through buying the book on our site. Please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again next time for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.